Welcome to our second podcast of What's the Story, Old Glory. Uh, I'm Todd Muller and with me is Elizabeth Soule. Thank you all so much for your um, feedback on our first podcast and the fact that so many of you listened. Uh, we were uh, really touched by that and hopefully you will find uh, this podcast uh, pretty interesting because, Elizabeth, we have someone uh, from America uh, joining us. Tell us, tell me about um, who we're talking to shortly. Yes, we are very fortunate to have with us today Stan Barnes, all the way from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, Stan was elected to the House of Representatives of Arizona in 1988. He was the youngest member at the time, and then he was elected to the State Senate in 1994. Since he retired from politics, he has been the head of Copper State Consulting, a lobbying public affairs and media company based in Phoenix. And he has appeared on CNN, Fox News, and appeared in Politico, the New York Times, Bloomberg, and numerous other publications. So we're very fortunate to have him with us today. Brilliant. Well, without any further ado, let's introduce Stan Barnes from Arizona. It's really good to be here. Thank you for having me. We're looking forward to this, uh, this podcast. So Stan, it would be great if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a bit about yourself and your background and um, how you got into politics. I'm happy to do so. Nothing, my favorite topic, talking about me, right? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm from Arizona. I was born here, uh, which um, if you know anything about Arizona and the United States is kind of rare because it's a new state and most people have moved here over time, but I'm a fourth generation uh arizona and from a farming family and uh and that plays into the story because i i did grow up on a cotton farm in arizona and and i knew early on that lying underneath a tractor uh on a hot day in arizona in the field was not what i wanted to do with my life and so i i gravitated toward the opposite of farming which is politics uh my my dad was a person that was uh all action and no words. And and I'm a person who's almost all words and no action uh, in, in politics. So I, I, I very much like being a part of it. Where did it, um, where did it start for you? I mean, we're, we're sort of what we call over here, uh, Stan, um, US political tragics, because we're New Zealanders who've fallen in love with the US uh, political system and presidents and all that sort of stuff. Where did it start for you? When did you get the bug and what did it look like for you? Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And um, and I'll try to hit right on that point. I To know Arizona particularly, and, and this is true in a lot of the United States, not everywhere, but in a lot of the United States, being willing to run, being willing to put yourself out there for elected position is half the battle. Once you're Once you're on the ballot, you, you just might win. Like Woody Allen said, 80% of life is just showing up. And there's a lot of truth in that in American politics. I, I was 27 years old when I decided to run for our state legislature, our state house of representatives. And uh, no one could tell me not to. And it, it is the kind of uh, beautiful process in Arizona. And as I say, in some other states, not all, that if you are willing and you are of goodwill and you could raise uh, some resources to tell your story, that you might just get elected. And indeed, when I ran in my 20s, 
uh, I defeated two incumbents and, and, wow. and, and, and to win. And to this day, I don't quite know how, but there was a, there was a different political fever that was happening in, uh, in the late 1980s in the United States. And I was, I took advantage of that. Plus my, uh, my, the, the fact that I was young and relatively uh, new to the process, I had a number of people tell me that that meant maybe I was not corrupt and they mm -hmm. wanted to vote for somebody that was new and not corrupt. So it was, uh, it was, it was interesting to me that I could run and win, but it, it put me on the trajectory of winning again and then being a member of our state Senate, the upper house in the Arizona legislature. And, and then eventually I did not run again because I really could not afford to stay there because it, it doesn't pay a, a living wage. And, um, and I had a family to support, so I did not run again after a term in the Senate. So I, I spent two terms in our state house, one term in our state Senate. And for the last quarter century, I've made a living in Arizona politics, but just not elected office, but on the outside of it, trying to influence the inside of it. And so you ran as a Republican on a Republican ticket? Yes, I did. I, I ran from a as a Republican from a Republican dominant area so that it made it a lot easier to win. Once I won the nomination of the party, then the general election was was a lot easier. So does it work similarly on the state level as it does at the national level where there's essentially a two party system, the Republicans and the Democrats, or, or are there more players involved at the state level, more independents, more third parties? that kind of thing. It, it is more similar than not. It is, it is a, a, a small version of the, of the big federal picture. Yes, there are the two major parties. In Arizona, there is uh, also the Libertarian Party with a candidate on the ballot. And, um, and that means that, there, that that candidate usually gets a few votes that might have gone somewhere else. But for the most part, it's a Republican or Democratic Party process, very similar to the national uh, look. How does it work with the, um, you know, when we look at the federal system and you've got your House of Representatives, uh, all the congressmen and women around the country, and then two senators from every state, and of course, then the president, uh, is it a similar uh, setup at the state level? Obviously, you've got a governor uh, and you've got your House um, representatives, how, is this, how does the Senate uh, element work at a state level? Yeah, it, it is very similar to the federal level, only, uh, as I say, a little bit reduced. The governor is like the president, the leader of the executive branch, and all the executive agencies from, from, the, the, from prisons to social welfare, uh, all, all work for her right now we have a female governor named katie hobbs and then the the house functions at the state level much like the federal level with with members representing their constituencies from their districts and the senate is the same there's a couple of differences in arizona uh the state is carved into 30 legislative districts and each of the 30 districts has two house members and one senator right. they represent the exact same boundary gotcha. and 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 the but they they serve the same terms they each have a two-year term 
And so the only real advantage to being in the Senate is that you have half of the personalities to deal with because we have 30, we have 30 state senators and there are 60 uh, House members. And so you only have to put up with fewer people, which is a good thing politically. And the Senate also has a couple of other uh, obligations under our constitution. For instance, it confirms certain nominations by the governor, much like the federal process where the, the U.S. Senate confirms presidential nominations uh, of, of some sort. So it's, but for the most part, you could take the federal system and lay it down right on top of Arizona and they are very similar. Each state has its own way of doing it. And for instance, uh, we at one time in history, Arizona and the state of New Mexico were one territory before the before either were states in, in the early 1900s. We were the the New Mexico territory, and eventually we were divided into the state of, of New Mexico and the state of Arizona in 1912. In 1912, and on February 14th, Valentine's Day, Arizona officially became a state. New Mexico was made a state uh, one month earlier. And so that of the contiguous 48 U.S. states on the mainland, Arizona is the newest one, the 48th state in 1912. But every single state has its own way of doing it. Different, a different number of House members, different number of senators, different legislative districts and how to do it. So you can't compare one to the other. They are all different. But we do have a lower house, an upper house, an executive branch. And, and so the similarity is there. And so turning to um, uh, the big sort of issue that we're debating as uh, two Kiwi politico tragics uh, over the next 15 months, Dan, is this remarkable election, which is uh, unfolding in your tremendous country. Um, I mean, I don't even know where to start. Perhaps Perhaps if you just give us a sense, uh, looking at it through your personal lens and the Arizona lens, uh, what's happening? Trump seems miles ahead, despite um, all the indictments against him. Uh, uh, who the other candidates are that you think as Kiwis we should be interested in, or uh, give us your sort of uh, top level summary of how it's all going on the Republican side first. Yes, uh, that is the more interesting side, I guess, but uh, it, it's, it is a very interesting moment in United States history. In fact, it's a, it, you might dare say it's a special moment that the country is going through something that's not normal. We, we, we normally have federal elections that are expensive and bruising and difficult, but nothing like this. So on the scale of normalcy, we are way above. If normal is a five, we are a 10. There is something happening within the United States. And it's not caused by Donald Trump. He is merely a vessel to express it. There is something happening at the grassroots level with, with the population of the United States. And it, it is very concerning, especially if, if the U.S. Is, is the shining light on the hill, as Ronald Reagan used to say, and is the leader of the free world because of its economy and its military force. It is, it is concerning. But we, we are on the backside of it. We're going to be different uh, as, a, as a country. The, the, the parties are reorganizing. They're shifting around. The constituencies 
are finding new homes. I think the, the, the flyover, the flyover headline is that there is a, a significant lack of trust in normal institutions by most American voters. And that lack of trust plays out in, in different ways for different voters, but in general, it plays out as support for what we call populist politics or America first politics that Donald Trump gave voice to in 2016 and continues to give voice today. So that constituency, which is extremely large, after all, Donald Trump got more votes than any other person in presidential history, except Joe Biden in 2020. And, and but that constituency wants dramatic overhaul of the federal government and its role in the lives of not only uh, people that live in the United States, but its role around the, the globe, around, around with all governments. It is a very much a, a America first orientation where uh, we focus on jobs at home and not so much helping other countries. We focus on, on defending America's shores, but we don't focus so much on, on Europe and, and Asia and, and the Middle East and other places where the United States has been. So to understand what's going on in the 2024 election, begin with, it's not because Donald Trump is Donald Trump. It's because Donald Trump represents something that is happening among regular people. And that in the Republican Party is is trying to find its way with that because Donald Trump is, of course, a controversial personality that has a way of really angering a lot of people. And so the the people running for president other than Donald Trump, almost to a person, are trying to be Donald Trump without the personality of Donald Trump. All of them are trying to be the populist America first person, mm. they see that political wave, they feel that political fever, and they want to capitalize on it uh, as good political people, as politicians. Ron DeSantis is, for the governor of Florida, is a perfect example of that. But there, almost everyone else running is this same person who wants to be Donald Trump, but a nice version, a non-controversial version, a more a more uh, a normalized uh, behavior in the public square. And, and that's why all of them are, for the most part, well behind Donald Trump, the person, despite his indictments, despite his ability to make people angry. Uh, he remains the leader of and gives voice to this and the people that want him as the nominee uh, think that what is happening to him legally with indictments by different uh, legal authority in different states and the federal government, those constituents think those indictments are all politically driven and they simply don't buy the accusation that he is a bad actor. They think of him as the catalyst for a different future. Uh, and, and that's why they will not let go of it. That's why he is the person that is going to be the nominee for the Republican Party because it's that moment in American history and no other nominee has that uh, bravado and gravitas and reputation 
to be able to get it done. So obviously you can't get inside the heads of the other people who are running um, to be the Republican nominee, but from where we're sitting, where we see the gulf in the polling between Trump and the other candidates, um, it seems to beg the question, why are they even bother running? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that, I love that question. That is an interesting question because I, on its surface, you might say, why go through the headache of, of running when you know you cannot win? And I think the answer is, is personal to each of them. But I think the secret to understand is these people that are running on when, when it is finished and they are not the nominee are, are going to be better off politically, they believe. Uh, and each of them believes that their name ID and and ability to raise money and make connections, even if they lose, will put them in a better spot for the next round When because after all, they are all very much younger than Donald Trump. And so they're playing a longer game of being a known figure. And in American politics, being a known figure is a, is a very positive thing. There's also the... Uh, the possibility, uh, since no one knows the future, that Donald Trump actually will not be the nominee because of some legal trouble uh, or, or some other thing. And so they're each playing a, the, the odds that if Donald Trump is actually, uh, for, for whatever reason, legally prohibited from running, that they will be there to catch that constituency and to lead that effort. Stan, I want to uh, just go back to your fantastic summary, actually, from my perspective of sort of what's going on in uh, in America in the minds of the, you know, as you say, the 60 plus million people that voted for Trump last time. Uh, and, uh, you know, that number is going to be shaded again in uh, 2024. Um, and the sort of the sort of uh, desire to reset America as um, these are my words, sort of more insular, more focused on uh, you know America interests, but seen through the lens of almost withdrawing from multilateralism and the broad coalition uh, of uh, democracies that essentially America led uh, post the Second World War. Um, wh- why? What's what's driving that? What's the what's the um, anti-establishment uh, feeling. Why is it so fierce? Because you know, from a New Zealand perspective, looking out, America still bestrides the world uh, with its uh, economic clout, its ability to um, you know drive for the right outcomes from a values perspective. So, what's the disconnect there that we're missing as New Zealanders when we look in uh, from afar? I appreciate that. This, Todd, this is a very difficult question to answer, um, but I will do my best. I, I think in part it is that uh, the, the lack of faith in institutions like the presidency, the U.S. Congress, even the Supreme Court and law enforcement entities like the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, and the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, that lack of trust is is foundational to to all of it. So why is the trust lacking? In part, it's because of what feels like pointless, endless uh, 
war and 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 waging uh, uh, difficulties in in faraway places. Of course, I'm thinking of Afghanistan first. That the United States was was there for as long as we were, and spent you know I, I don't know how much money over a trillion U.S. dollars and lost thousands of U.S. lives. Not to mention other allies that were in in that poor part of the world. And and when 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 the Joe Biden administration withdrew, that vacuum was swallowed up immediately by the very people we were trying to displace, and it's as if nothing ever happened in a positive way. Yet all that money was spent and all those lives were lost. That is probably exhibit A of what's driving a lot of this. There, there's also a, a things that are happening at home that, that make it feel like this is just not the same country we knew. Uh, economically, the feeling that jobs have been exported uh, to Asia uh, mainly uh, and outside of the United States uh, that that has been brewing for many years, and it's partly the Republicans' main problem. To be a Republican, to be a John McCain Republican in the past three decades meant free trade was a basic uh, tenet of the Republican Party. We want no tariffs. We want open trade with everyone in the world. It's empowered China. It's empowered others. And it, in, in the opinion of many, has taken high wage, good paying American jobs and exported them and left us with what? With cheaper items at Walmart. And that's somehow not satisfying. So those two things of economic uh, displacement caused by free trade and empowering what we think of as sometimes our enemies like China and the what feels like pointless American uh, uh, action in, in other parts of the world leading to no good result has combined to bring us into a populist oriented politic. It's not the first time it's happened in US history, but it hasn't happened in at least a century. And so here we are. So is what you're saying that this hasn't been a sudden change it's been a, a slow process over the last sort of 20 to 30 years that, that may have been punctuated by events, but it hasn't occurred all of a sudden. I really want to impart to your listeners is, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a natural inclination to say, this is all Donald Trump or Donald Trump did this. But I can assure you that is neither of those things is true. He did not do this and it is not his fault but he was elected in 2016 over the Bush dynasty and other qualified governors and candidates because he was willing to give voice to it. And that, that made him a very popular president with that constituency. And that's why that constituency, which is a tremendous large constituency, is supporting him today no matter what they throw at him. As a matter of fact, the more they throw at him, the more it is proof he is the man to go forward and to reset the country. And so it, it's a vicious circle for Trump's opponents because the more they hit him, the stronger they make him. And there's no doubt that is happening. We had a poll here by one of our national news networks uh, last week that had Donald Trump 10 points ahead of Joe Biden 
in a head-to-head -head matchup for uh, for the presidency. And that is flummox uh, to uh, Democrats and Biden supporters and people that do not like Donald Trump, because after all, he's supposed to be someone that's so dislikable and so uh, has acted so illegally that there's no way he could win the presidency. But today, if the election were held, he would win. I, I think uh, there's a combination of factors there, but the, the, the main one is his constituency is united and is sure that the more they try to take him down, the more he indeed is the guy that needs to lead the country. Uh, but you, you can't talk about it without also talking about Joe Biden, uh, who is, uh, is, is not doing well um, in the, in the average barbershop and cafe and grocery store in the United States, certainly in Arizona. It is understood that Joe Biden, uh, his age is a serious factor and his mental and physical health is a serious negative factor. And when, you know, under the Joe Biden administration, uh, the economy of the United States, depending on who you ask, is struggling. Uh, gas prices, which are an indicator of political things in Arizona uh, and across the nation, are twice as high as they were when Donald Trump was president. Mortgage rates for home buyers are twice as high and more today than they were when Donald Trump was president. And so some of the foundational things that affect average people are very much more expensive. Uh, than they were when Trump was president. Uh, you combine that with, with Joe Biden's uh, style of, of making a lot of gaffes and a lot of mistakes, and you could go on and on, but he's not doing well. And because he's the incumbent president, his party can't just defeat him at the polls. They have to work with him. Um, and so it, it, it has led to a, a prominent political person, the son of the former president, uh, the, 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 excuse me, the nephew of the former president, John F. Kennedy, the former president, his nephew, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., is actually in the Democratic race for presidency. And it's, it's very awkward for the incumbent Joe Biden because in polling, RFK Jr., Robert Kennedy Jr., is doing a lot better than he should against a sitting Democratic governor. And so the, uh, the combination of Joe Biden is weak as a political figure, and Donald Trump has a united constituency that thinks he was done wrong in the last election. That puts Trump in the driver's seat for the time being. Although the national polling is one thing, but that's not how the results on election day will be decided, will they? Because who determines the president is the electoral college rather than a nationwide popular vote. Is that correct? Yes, it. Yes, you're making a very good point. Um, it, it's not, we don't vote as a nation, we vote as individual states. And, and the, each individual state has so much value, uh, uh, voice in the electoral college. And so it's not a straight, uh, the more popular are, the, the better. Uh, as a matter of fact, Republicans think that's a good thing because Democratic states like California and New York have millions of people. Uh, and, and if it were just a straight 
vote, then Democrats would do much better. But in, in the United States, it's not the way we do it. We have Republican states like Wyoming, where only 400,000 people live. But that state has a big voice in the Electoral College. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's not a straight line, but, but the, the Trump popularity in key states that are swing states, like Arizona, that could make or break the, the numerical majority in the Electoral College, that's why Trump is looking so good. It's not just a, a poll of the masses. It is a poll of swing states like Arizona. And so, well. uh, Stan, what are those swing states for the Kiwis listening? Obviously, Arizona is one of them where you live. Uh, I understand there's like a handful, really, that will ultimately decide the way of the election in 2024. Yeah, there are. Arizona is, uh, we think, chief among them. But uh, other states like Pennsylvania or Georgia are, are also in that category. They they could go either way, and and depending on on how how things break, they 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 will make or break the uh, the presidential race. And right now, Trump is doing better in those states than he did last time. And what about Joe what Biden. do they call the Rust Belt? Have I got that right? Um, uh, and the Midwest uh, are those states likely to uh, fall Republican, um, uh, or are they going to stay with? Um, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, I'm thinking. Carry on. Yeah, if they look. I'm thinking yes, Illinois and um, uh, Wisconsin. I mean, that was one that was a shock in 2016, right? Because everyone thought that would be a solid Democrat because right. it had been for ages. Uh, and I suspect your your insight around actually a lot of people there feeling the cost of living, feeling the joblessness, the sense of despair around where America is in the world. They swung heavily behind. Uh, Trump, uh, what's your sense this time? They did, and my sense is that that same phenomenon will hold in the 2024 election. Uh, you, you combine the, the same forces that put Trump in office in 2016 with the unpopularity of Joe Biden, and there you are. Um, it, for it, as, as a curiosity, Joe Biden, the president, is actually going to Michigan, another one of those states, and is going to uh, stand on the on the sidewalk with with auto workers that are striking against the audio, audio manufacturers. Uh, he's doing that because he's afraid he's he's losing the working man vote in in that swing state, and so there, it's, it's a testament to the difficult politics for the incumbent president. And I understand that Trump is doing something similar. He's foregoing the second Republican candidates debate, and instead he's making a speech to the striking auto workers in Detroit. Yes, he, I think he is. Uh, Trump is is doing a different calculus. You know, he he uh, he's he knows he has the nomination, so he's not going to go reach down with people that would like to defeat him. He doesn't need to. Uh, and so it's it's a strategic calculation that I think is the the correct one for him. This has been fantastic, Stan. Thanks so much for your time. One last question. Um, who is your favorite American president and why? Uh, that's really kind of you to ask that. Uh, I appreciate that. I My favorite is, is Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and I, I, I like him because 
mainly, mainly because he had so much enthusiastic courage. And, and that enthusiastic courage is such a, uh, an attractive quality for me. He, he did a lot of things when it comes to policy. He changed the United States. He did. Uh, from busting up monopolies to, to setting the Grand Canyon in the state of Arizona as a national park and preservation like that. But at his speak softly and carry a big stick philosophy on the, on the international stage was, is very attractive to me as a voter. Thanks, Dan. Wow. I reckon he was pretty impressive as a first guest. Um, Elizabeth, what do you think? Oh, he was fantastic. Um, just what we were hoping for provided some really useful insight from an American perspective, because it's all very well and good for us to sit here from across the ocean and give our two cents worth, but hearing it straight from someone on the ground who's involved in politics on a day-to-day basis, just brilliant. Yeah. Same. The thing that really struck me was the whole, um, it don't focus just on Trump. Yeah. Um, you know, Trump is who Trump is. And that's, you know, the, I'm sure many other podcasts worth of discussion and debate, but actually him as a vessel of sort of capturing uh, this deep anger uh, and frustration that exists in the American uh, communities across the country. I found that really amazing and how he was actually, uh, you know, stepped through that in quite some detail. So um, I'm glad he said he'll be back because I'd love to have him back. And of course, you know, as our listeners would appreciate, we will uh, ensure to have a voice uh, from the Democrat side that uh, obviously believes um, that Biden is the future uh, <laughs> and uh, more importantly can sort of put the democratic context of, you know, that sort of American anger, which is mm. clearly palpable and real. It would be interesting to hear their perspective to say whether they agree that Trump is a symptom or a cause. Yes, in a nutshell. Well said. Well said. So we've got a um, a new segment that uh, we're going to introduce, which is a very cool idea, Elizabeth. Why don't you tell us and the listeners uh, what this is? Sure. So our new segment is called Past Glory, and this is where we learn a bit more about a past president. And I thought we would start with some of the lesser known presidents. So not your Abraham Lincolns or JFKs, but some of those presidents that we don't often hear a lot about. And I thought that to start us off, I would pick one randomly off the list. And so our first past president off the Past Glory list is Zachary Taylor. Well, what a name, Zachary. Uh, that's, uh, that's, I mean, you get a few Zacks. So Zachary Taylor, uh, my guess he was a president in the 1800s because, as you say, certainly not modern in uh, top-of-the-mind type president. When was he elected? That's right. So he was the 12th US president. Um, he served a very short term. He was elected in 1848, uh, inaugurated in 1849, and died in 1850. He uh, was the nomination from the Whig Party, which no longer exists, WH. Wig, W H I G. So, so tell me, what does that party st- what did that party stand for? I mean, you sort of get the sense of the Democrats and the Republicans. This is obviously pre the Republicans. So, what did the Whig Party stand for? So, the Whigs were uh, like the predecessors to the Republican Party in a way. Um, there were actually three parties contesting the eighteen forty eight presidential election. There were the Whigs, 
uh, the Democrats, who we know about, and the Free Soilers. And the three parties all had different platforms, largely based on policy issues to do with slavery and the status of slavery in the newly formed states uh, that had and territories that had been um, added to the Union after the American American Mexican War. Uh, so this included Colorado, New Mexico. Um, California, Texas, what would become Nevada, Arizona, and Utah. Um, Zachary Taylor was actually a decorated national war hero from the Mexican-American War, and the Free Soilers were being led by uh, past president um, Martin Van Buren. Free Soil Party, which when you think about it, is you know it makes sense that the new, the new lands that we conquer, in inverted commas, should be free of slaves. Uh, then you have the Democrats, who were back then pro-slavery, to, to make your point around how much they've changed over the years, uh, and then uh, Zachary Taylor's Whig Party. So what's the, uh, what's the um, past glory that we're going to uh, uh, highlight uh, with respect to President uh, Zachary Taylor? Yeah, well, he's somewhat inglorious in the way he, he, he left the presidency. So he died in office uh, in July 1850 spent a day seemingly eating a lot of cherries and iced milk and this led to a severe bout of gastroenteritis and he died two days later. Gosh, extraordinary. Now it actually gets more interesting because um, he had been visited um, by his political rivals shortly before his death and so rumours started flying that uh, he may have actually been poisoned. Um, and these rumours persisted for many years to come. And in an effort to put the rumours to bed, um, Zachary Taylor's remains were exhumed as recently as 1991. Wow. 30 years ago. What, to check whether he had been poisoned or not? Yes, and so the outcome of the um, exhumation and the subsequent um, investigation found that there was no um, evidence that he had been assassinated. Um, but that he had died of natural causes. However, the medical records from his treatment show that, um, that what his doctors prescribed him may have been worse than his disease because it included treatments such as Ipecac and opium. So that perhaps didn't do him any favours. Wow. So the first pre second president to die in office uh, and uh, death by diarrhoea. That's uh, as opposed to dastardly hand, which is what was assumed. And last fact about Zachary Taylor, uh, he was the last person to be elected president who was neither Republican nor Democrat. Wow. Two-party system since 1853. Extraordinary when you put it like that, isn't it? Um, in the context of an MMP election, which, but of course this isn't about New Zealand politics, red light warning in front of my uh, laptop here. Uh, so thank you. And so um, any... Uh, president that the listeners would like us to uh, uh, um, uh, have a chat about, and in particular if listeners have a view as to uh, who a past president might qualify uh, to have a, a little segment done on them, uh, a past glory that perhaps beats death by diarrhoea, um, feel free to uh, email us. What's our email address, Elizabeth? 
Yep, our email address is oldglorypod at gmail.com. And we would also love to hear any questions that you've got um, around uh, the US political system, what's happening in the election. Um, but please put a viewer question in the subject line and we will try and answer that for you in a future episode. Or perhaps um, we will try and get an expert in um, who could answer it better, even better than we could. Brilliant. And talking about... Um uh, experts. There'll be a few on stage, I guess, in a few days' time. That's that's what's going to dominate our uh, uh, thinking uh, and watching from a political nerd perspective. The second debate is in California uh, in a couple of days' time. Uh, I'm excited about it. What's your what's your sense, uh, Elizabeth, when you look forward to that after reflecting on the uh, on the comments of Stan? Yes, well, I think this time around, I'm definitely going to be watching it through the lens of uh, the candidates looking to the future, um, trying to cement their name recognition in the American public. So we'll see more of Chris Christie trying to differentiate himself from the others with his Trump bashing. Um, We'll see more of Ramaswamy being a showman and um, trying to um, whip up support that way. And we'll see more of uh, Nikki Haley trying to flex her foreign policy muscle um, and make herself stand out in that respect. And try to be the adult in the room, maybe. Um, very good. I look forward to uh, seeing that. And um, so we will uh, be uh, back with you again in a few days. We'll watch the debate and um, uh, and then circle back and share our thoughts, uh, not only between the two of us, but also with you, uh, and hope you'll find that uh, interesting. So. Um, from a cold Palmerston North at the home of the Basketball Nationals, where I am with my watching my son's team play basketball, uh, it's farewell from me. And from a similarly cold North Otago, where I've got can see a decent smattering of snow on the mountains, it's goodbye from me. the story Old Glory is written, produced and edited by Elizabeth Soule and Todd Muller for Old Glory Casting. Our cover art is by Caitlin at Studio Naylor. Our theme tune is Shootout at Sundown by Del Boney. You can find us on Facebook, Threads, Instagram and the platform formerly known as Twitter. Mā te wā.